Well, as you know, and as I mentioned, we had a wonderful conference this weekend with Barry Long. He was here with his wife, France. Barry has been such a blessing to our church, a blessing to me. I've, I've known Barry for, I think, a few decade, decades now. Uh, the, the thing I love about Barry, uh, beyond the fact that he's older than me, <laughs> one of the few people, is Barry, Barry has shown such incredible faithfulness in so many areas. Barry has been a model faithfulness in his following the Lord, faithfulness as a, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father. Barry's been a, a pastor to pastors within the movement. He's overseen the, the Holy Spirit task force uh, in, in the vineyard and served on the general council in the vineyard. But what, what I really love most about Barry is that he, he's someone that has a, just a ferocious appetite for things of the kingdom of God. You know, he, he's been in ministry now for over 40 years, but it, it hasn't waned. He just, he just goes after it. He's available to Jesus. He, he's used by God in so many ways, and we've been benefiting from that this week. And so, Barry, thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to what you have to share with us this morning. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank hey, good morning, everybody. Really, really glad to be here at the Delaware County Vineyard. It's um, one of my favorite places to come to speak, which I say every time I come, and because it is. It's great. And uh, everything is wonderful in life when Ohio State crushes their opponent and the Bengals are 8-0. I just want to add that. All right. All right. And uh, Danny, I'm just barely older than Danny, and he looks older than me. So I just... It, you know, what are you going to do? All right, so um, glad I'm here. Um, I've been having some conversations with people because our, our church has just finished a series called The End, and um, I told some people at the conference, I said, look, I'm going to give the definitive interpretation of the book of Revelation. And people laughed out loud at me. There is a reason people laughed out loud. The book of Revelation is notoriously the hardest book in the Bible to interpret because many people make it way too complicated. Even Martin Luther, the, faith, the great reformer, said the book of Revelation cannot be explained. It's unexplainable. Now, Martin Luther was a pretty bright guy. And so when you say, I am going to give the definitive interpretation of the book of Revelation, you've bit off a lot more than you can probably chew. But I think we can get someplace today with this. I know that there are a lot of people in this room who've been in Bible studies where the first topic you wanted to talk about was the book of Revelation, and usually it's the book of Revelations. But it's just singular. And I don't know why everybody wants to study it. I think it must be because it's mysterious and sensationalist and on all those kinds of things. And everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Look, there is a group of thinkers out there uh, that all oh, are about 120 years old now who say that they can interpret the book of Revelation as if it were a crystal ball. They actually can find stuff in Revelation that's happening today. They know who the Antichrist is, and the revelation, the book, is like a crystal ball for them. All they have to do is follow the dots, and they've got a perfect system worked out. You've probably read their books. 
And there's another group of folks that say, wait a second. The book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. In the first century, everything it says was already happening, and it already happened. And they are just as confident about their interpretation of the book of Revelation as the first group is. Well, Revelation is a very challenging book, and uh, it literally means the apocalypse. That's what the word revelation means. And the apocalypse is usually connected by us to things that are sideways, crazy, destructive, end of the world stuff, right? I mean, we think of what happened in Paris as an apocalypse of a, of a kind. But the word apocalypse doesn't mean that. It means unveiling. It means to be unveiled. It means God's pulling the curtain back. That's what apocalypse actually means. And so uh, Revelation has both present and future implications for the people who originally received the letter and both present and future implications for everybody sitting in this room and everybody in the world. And that's the book of Revelation. But the heart of the book is something deeper than a crystal ball. It's something deeper than a timetable or a calendar. The heart of Revelation is someone. It's someone who is unveiled. And in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, John, the author, says who is being unveiled. Listen. The revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the unveiling of Jesus is the climax of the story of God, and it's the heart of the message of the Bible, and it's the theme of the book of Revelation. We're going to dig into it a little bit today, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the good things that you have planned today for the folks who've shown up. I pray, God, that you would bring each person in this room a little bit closer to your heartbeat. I especially pray for those who are brand new to the Bible or just checking you out, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would especially draw them just a little closer. I pray that you would unveil yourself somehow to each of us, wherever we are in our journey towards you and in you. I ask all that, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, you know, uh, we obviously can't read the whole 22 chapters of Revelation today, but here's some stuff you do need to know if you are going to read it, and I hope you will. I hope you read every word of it. The letter was originally written to seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, what we call Asia Minor today. It's where Turkey is, and it's in that Middle Eastern part of the world. And those seven churches were under deep and heavy persecution. And they were under persecution from the, uh, the current empire. And the empire was Rome. Revelation was probably written around 64 A.D. And it, it was probably written just before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Nero was probably the emperor, and Nero was a madman. He was a sadist. And Christians were being persecuted because they refused to worship 
the Roman emperor, who had by that time ascended as a god and was demanding worship. Well, Christians were really nice folk, but they wouldn't do that. So they were losing their jobs, losing their businesses, and losing their lives. That's what's going on in the churches that John wrote this letter to in uh, Asia Minor. Now, John wrote the message, as you might guess, in coded language because he wanted the people that were getting the note, the letter, to understand what it meant, but he did not want the Romans to understand what it meant. Look, you'll go a lot further in the book of Revelation if you recognize it's written in code. And the people who got it understood it, and the people who would have intercepted it and perhaps betrayed those folk, they couldn't understand all of it. Here's the second thing about the language of Revelation really will help you as you read your way through it. And that is, it happens to be an example in many parts of the book of Revelation, happens to be an example of a certain genre of writing, a certain kind of writing that the prophets used. Isaiah used it, Jeremiah used it, Daniel used it, Jesus used it. It's called apocalyptic writing. And obviously it's related to that word we talked about earlier, apocalypse. And it means to unveil. And so here's what apocalyptic writing does. It takes hyperbole, which in our parlance means over the top, right? Hyperbole. Uh, You're saying too much to describe something because you want to show how important it is. So you're using this hyperbole. So it takes that and it, it, it talks about theologically significant events by using hyperbole like the stars are falling from the sky. That's apocalyptic writing. And everybody who read this would have understood it. Everybody who read Isaiah would have understood that. It's just we in the West that seem like we don't understand it, and we take everything that's literal, and we make it figurative, and we take everything that's figurative, and we make it literal. I don't know why we do it, but that's what we do with the Revelation very often. And you'll get off into the weeds if you read it that way. If you don't understand the coded language, if you don't understand the apocalyptic genre of the language that's going on. Um, Jesus employed it when he predicted the fall of Jerusalem. He predicted it 40 years before it happened. And here's what he said. Now keep in mind what I've said about the two kinds of language. Jesus said, this is what it's going to be like when the temple falls when the heart of Judaism is crushed. That's a pretty significant theological event, isn't it? And here's how he describes it. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He's not talking about the end of the world, but if you just read it on the surface, that's what you'd think he was talking about, wouldn't you? He's not talking about the end of the world. Look, back in 2008 or 9, right in that area, when we said Wall Street collapsed, Wall Street crashed, were we talking about the streets of New York falling into the sewers of New York and the buildings coming down? No. We were talking about a real event, a really significant event, but not literally that the streets caved in and the buildings fell down. But if you were invested in the market at that time, it would have felt like the stars were falling from the skies for you. And so when the folks who got this letter got it, they understood the significance because they understood the coded language and they understood apocalyptic. And to use another piece of apocalyptic, 
they saw a killer storm coming. The wind was already blowing in that storm, and they knew more was about to come. Those are the seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to. Now, with that background, let me bring this up to date a little bit. Um, the same kind of persecution, the same kind of killer storm is going on in the world today if you are a follower of Jesus. And sometimes in the West we have trouble relating to this because in North America we've been so sheltered, we've been so blessed. But I want you to hear somebody that has an experience kind of like the seven churches we're going through right now. This will modernize this a bit. Take a look at this video. We talked to some of these people from Iraq and Egypt and Pakistan and even in the midst of their torture, God's love was real. Take Rami, for instance. He was burned with cigarettes and fire. His toenails were ripped off. His testicles were electrocuted. But even then, the light of the world drove away his darkness. In every uh, bone in my neck, I, f I see Jesus uh, hugged me and when I lost my conscience uh, I see Jesus hug me like you saw it like you had a vision like... can, can I get zero yes 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 so as as they were burning you you, you felt you felt his presence, you felt him as if he was hugging you. Yes. Before I was Christian by the name. And after the burning again, my life was changing. I leave everything for, for Jesus. I have no relative here. I have no money, I have no business. I live there in Egypt, but I know that Jesus will not leave me. Now, if you put yourself in his place, you're starting to get a feel for who was getting the letter in Asia Minor. And the idea of the letter is for people like Rami who could have felt very easily like there was no God when he was being tortured. He could have felt very easily like the world was coming to an end for him. He could have turned away from God very easily as well. But I want you to know something, particularly if you're going through a hard time, Jesus is very close to the suffering. He suffered. He gets it. He knows what your pain is right now. Whatever it is, whatever hard time you're going through, thank God it's usually not as hard as what Rami went through, but whatever you're going through right now, Jesus is relating to you like he did Rami. In his pain, in his suffering, he said, Jesus hugged me. That's how close the Lord is to those who pay attention, particularly when you're going through pain when you're going through evil. So that's what the seven churches were going through in a different and hopefully, hopefully milder version. Some of you are going through the same thing. You're going through a hard time and you're asking, where in the heck is God? 
I thought God loved me. How could God love me and this happen? The book of Revelation is written to you. It's written to you. So the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are specific messages. When you read them, they are specific messages for those seven churches. Each church has a message. As you read through, you'll see. But chapters 4 and 5 really set the tone for the whole book. If you get chapters 4 and 5 right, you will know how to look and read the Revelation. They're very key. And that's what we're going to focus on this weekend. Now, as noted several times now, the Christ followers in these seven churches were being persecuted and they were feeling overwhelmed. So here's what John does to encourage them. John pulls back the curtain, unveiling, and he says, this is how things really are. I know you're experiencing this right now, but let me show you reality, ultimate reality. And he begins to set about doing that in chapter 4. The text says that John is caught up in the Spirit. We'll get to that in a moment. But what this means is that John somehow enters into the dimension of God. You know, reality, according to the New Testament, has two dimensions. There's the seen dimension, and there's the unseen dimension. And the unseen dimension affects the seen dimension. In fact, it breaks in, the future actually breaks into the present when we see somebody that we pray for that is healed, it's the unseen dimension breaking into the physical seen dimension and doing the healing. It's God invading earth. It's the kingdom of God, the rule of God invading right now. Both of these things exist. I want to say side by side, but they actually overlap. Some of you were feeling the unseen dimension as we worshiped and sang those songs. Very real stuff. My wife had an experience that I think illustrates this well. Not long ago, she was um, in a small group at our church, and they were doing a, um, uh, the facilitator there was doing a directed prayer uh, sort of a, of a thing. And what that means is uh, the facilitator was asking them to uh, imagine something and uh, do that in a sort of a meditation. And here's what the facilitator asked them to imagine, that you were riding in a car. It was a spring day. It was lovely, and the wind is blowing through, and Jesus is riding in the car with you. What does he say to you? And then they would meditate from there. Now, it's not uh, sort of, uh, you know, craziness because Jesus really is with us. So my wife was doing that, and she was following the directed prayer, and Jesus began to speak to her. And he said, I want to show you something. And so he took her back to the time, the day in 1976, when she was converted, when she began to follow Jesus. Now, this is like an open vision she's having. And, and so she sees herself in this room where we were both converted in a little church called the Vineyard, in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. There was only one vineyard then, and that was it. And we were sitting on the front rows, we always did, and she was having this OBE, out-of-body experience, and she was like looking down on the room. Everybody got the picture so far. And she, we came to the end of the service, and she was watching what was happening, and this was the day that she responded to the pastor who always said during prayer, when everybody's eyes were closed, who wants to follow Jesus? Raise your hand and pray this prayer with me. And her hand went up. 
service was over. She and I got up. We began to leave the room. She grabbed her purse. And then Jesus showed her what she was leaving behind. JT sang about the chains being broken by Jesus' love and mercy. She saw thick chains falling off of her as she was walking out of the room. They were all left behind. She saw demonic, ugly things flying out of her. Really, it was, it was incredibly appalling to her. The residue of yucky stuff just left in the room. And then the Lord spoke to her and said, this is the ha- what happened the day that you decided to follow me. He pulled back the veil and said, this is the unseen world that you didn't know about then. She just grabbed her purse and walked out of the room. God gave her the privilege of seeing what she'd been separated from when she started to follow Jesus. There is a seen and an unseen world, and the unseen world is just as real as the seen world, and it breaks into our world just as it will as we pray for one another after this service. So John knew how horrible things look for these seven churches, and he pulled back the veil, and he said, this is what's really happening. And that's one of the ways that he encouraged them. Here's what he saw. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me at first, which this is in a previous chapter, like a trumpet said, come up here. And I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. There he goes, into that other dimension that we were talking about. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. What was this? This is the control center of the universe. You see, the seven churches were all about the Roman empires controlling the universe. Some people think U.S. America is controlling the world. Empires have always been thought to control the world. But what John is unveiling is that there's one who controls the world that you may not see, but this is the nerve center of all things. He saw one sitting on a throne. And it's his appearance. John uses his best language to try to describe what he's experiencing in this vision. And here's the thing. It's not just power. It's not just ultimate power. It is that. But it's also purity, holiness, and love. All of that's radiating. And that's what John is experiencing. His readers were under persecution. Some of you are having a hard time right now as well, going through trouble. But here's what you need to know from this picture. The one who's in control of all things is good. He's holy. He's pure. He's love. And he has all power. I know that doesn't line up with your life right now. But Jesus wants to pull back the veil. He wants to remind you. No, the one in control, shaping history, shaping our lives, that one is love. Hold on to that. That's what's real. God wants to show you what's really happening. And I know that comes as a shock to those of us who are going through a hard time right now. But it also is an incredible encouragement. You can see why John wanted to show them 
who were being persecuted so severely. Uh, a friend of mine who was a prophetic guy used to say, this is Papa's ball game. By that he means God the Father, of course. And here's the thing that's really amazing about Papa. He gives us a say in the process. In other words, God shares power with his created world. He shared power with archangels. Some of them broke bad. He shares power with you. He gives you a choice. That's what I mean by sharing power. He doesn't hoard all the power. He gives you a real choice and whether or not you want to break bad or follow love. And your choice counts. Lucifer's choice counted. That's God because here's what he knows. That only by free choice can people actually choose to love. And that's his aim. Follow me out of love. Not because you think I'm going to crush you like a bug. Not because you're a robot. I'm sharing power with you so we can have this relationship of love for all eternity. That's the God that John is unveiling. That's the Christ that John is unveiling in the Revelation. Chapter 5 of the letter shows us how God has won the war with evil. I bet you wondered about that. God is going to defeat evil completely. He's going to wipe every tear away. How does that happen? Before we get into that, let me share with you a misreading of the book of Revelation, a common error people make in reading Revelation, is that many Christians read this book as if it were an Avengers movie. And what I mean by that is the good guys beat the bad guys, and they don't only beat them, they beat them into submission. They cut off their heads, they chop off their arms, and they love doing it because we know we're righteous, we know we're justified. People read the book of Revelation that way, and they, of course, are always the ones who are righteous. And everybody else is bad, so we have our pet people that we love to hate. I don't want to uncover anything really sore because it's still so fresh, but, you know, some of us love to hate jihadists. And there's a spirit of revenge with some people who read the book of Revelation, and that's not God's spirit. The spirit of revenge is like an Avenger movie. You know, uh, the thing is, is that God will bring justice Evil will be punished, but it won't look like this. And, you know, justice should come. And the revelation is very clear that it will come. And it will be horrible for those who break bad. And what the revelation and the symbolic and the, apocryphal, the apocalyptic language means in revelation is it depicts the inner conflict that people will go through in the suffering and also the very real conflict and evil that happens in the real world like we saw in Paris. There's more of that coming. Because when we choose poorly, God allows us to go ahead and experience those choices. But here's the thing we have to remember about evil. Jesus doesn't defeat it like Rambo on steroids. That's what we would do. The enemy has deceived us into thinking that violence is the answer. Because that's the way the enemy does it. It's the way he's always done it. He's a murderer. That's not God. That's not what John's unveiling in the process. He's unveiling somebody else. Sadly, people get caught in the avalanche. 
Jesus doesn't break bad to defeat evil in Revelation 5. There's a certain scroll that comes into play. It has seven seals and it has to be opened. Those of you who have read Revelation 5 know about the scroll and the seals and how distraught John was when he couldn't find anybody in heaven or earth that could open the scroll. Nobody was worthy. But that was uh, uh, only apparent. It wasn't true. But John was so broken by it, he said, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. So John is mixing two word pictures here, and at first they seem contradictory, don't they? First you have this incredibly strong beast, a lion, who does what he wants, and he does it by force, and he's mean, and he tears people to pieces because he can. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he gives us a picture of a lamb. And if you understand the language of the passage, this is not just a, a lamb that you see out in the field someplace. This is a pet lamb. Many people in the Middle East used to keep pet lambs. They used to sleep with a family and everything like that. There's something about this little lamb, though, and, it's, it's, and that is that it's been slaughtered. Sacrificial uh, throat slitting is what's in mind here like the sacrifices made at the temple in Jerusalem for the atonement of sin. So we have this picture that's mixed. And in it, in the picture, what we have is the secret to how God defeats evil. Yes, Jesus is the, uh, the root of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in this picture that John sees in the center of the throne, He's transformed into a sacrificial lamb. That's how God does it. It's not how you do it, is it? No, you're, you're like Rambo. Feels better, doesn't it? Feels better to chop their heads off. That's not the way God does it. That's the way the evil one does it. This is how God defeats evil, sacrificial love. That's why it's in the center of the throne. It's the deepest, highest revelation of God in Scripture. Every other revelation in Scripture is subservient to it. That's the secret of the victory of God. All Jesus, or John, I should say, is saying in pictures, Paul, the apostle, said in plain language, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he writes, For God was in Christ... Mark that, in Christ, God was in Christ, God was in Christ, God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message he's given us to share and tell others. And, and the reason I emphasize God was in Christ is because there's a lot of people who have a dichotomy about this. They think God's really the one that's mad at us, and Jesus sort of, sort of, sort of says, oh, don't, don't hurt him. Like, as if they're opposed to each other. And God would have wiped us out if it wasn't for this kind one, that, you know, this kind God that we like all better than that mean God in the Old Testament. This is the kind God, Jesus. Wipe that out of your mind. God was in Christ, on the cross, 
The Trinity was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. That's how God does it. So God took the judgment of my sin on himself in Christ, and he's going to do the same for you. Anybody who asks him in the whole world down through history, so Jesus didn't break bad to defeat evil, he did it by sacrificial love. I love Greg Boyd's quote. It'll come up here right now. Greg Boyd said, if you want to see God flex his muscles, look at the cross. That's how he did it. So John, the gospel writer, may be the same one who wrote the Revelation. We're not really sure about that. doesn't matter. It's all inspired. But if it is, this really makes sense because John, the gospel writer in the fourth gospel, says that when Jesus died on the cross, that's when he was glorified. You would think it's when he rose from the dead, wouldn't you? You'd think it was when he ascended into heaven and rules the universe. No, it was when he died on the cross. That's when he glorified himself. A couple of Greek guys were coming to ask Jesus a question. They were probably groupies. They probably, like maybe some of us would like to do, ask him some esoteric question, you know. But uh, Jesus was doing something else, had bigger fish to fry. He was just about to go to the cross. And so he just stops on that occasion and he says this. Time's up. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There it is. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground and dead to the world, it's never more than a grain of wheat. But if it's buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to this life just as it is destroys that life. Oh, man. He just said a lot there, didn't he? If you hold on to this life just as it is, you actually ruin it. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If any one of you wants to serve me, he has to follow me. Now, here's a good question for those of you who are thinking about following Jesus. Do you really want to? You want to follow him there? Do you want to follow him to that cross? That's what he's saying here. You want to hold on to your life. You're not willing to give it away in sacrificial love. It doesn't always have to be a cross. Thank God. Then this is how you follow me. You give your life away. And when you do that, you're going to find the real fulfillment and satisfaction of life. It's so counterintuitive. When you give your life away, you finally figure out what life is. That's what Jesus says. I want you to be fulfilled. I want you to feel wonderful. I want you to love because when you give your life away, you're actually acting like a person created in the image of God. That's when you're doing it. So counterintuitive to us. We're so just the opposite of that. So this is an unveiling, isn't it? It's an unveiling of who God really is, who Jesus really is. Now at the cross, um, the great dragon, which is the Satan, that's what John calls him in the Revelation, uh, he thinks he's won, doesn't he? He thinks he's won by violence. That's his way. He's, he's horribly tortured and crucified, the Son of God. He's won. He's jumping up and down and doing his little victory dance, you know, no doubt about it. And no doubt the disciples thought he'd won too because they were seeing their master mocked by the Pharisees and by the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. If you're the Messiah, come on down, you know. And and so we have Satan mocking the Son of God while he's on the cross looking extremely weak and shameful. 
dying a criminal's death. But that was Friday. Sunday was coming. And here's what was really happening. Let's draw back the curtain here. In his act of love, Jesus is a superhero. Here's what he does. He swallows shame, sin, evil, depression, disaster. He swallows that atomic bomb and then he detonates it inside of himself and absorbs all of it. That's what a superhero does. And then he rises three days later. Sunday was coming. And now who's mocking? You know, I have a strange imagination. It's, it's, it's well known. And um, so I'm imagining an angel watching all this drama unfold, seeing the king of the universe shamed like this, wondering what the heck and then he rises on the third day. What do you think the angels must have been doing? I, it has to look something like this. Take a look at this video. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Stay patient, mama. Honey, best I ain't waiting. I'm thinking at night. We have to sit out here and wait a long period of time, period of time, period of wait a long Now, if you continue to read, it, that's, a, that's what happened in heaven. You know it is. You know that's what happened. So, so it, you know, if you continue to read the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 19. A lot of people think chapter 19 of Revelation contradicts what I've been talking about, how God is actually doing this, how he defeats evil, because we have a picture of what is obviously Jesus coming in armor with a big old sword on a white horse. You say, say, yeah, that's my Jesus. That's macho Jesus. That's the guy I I can worship that guy. But not just little lamb. But I don't wonder if anybody notices when they read Revelation 19 that Jesus' sword comes out of his mouth. Anybody notice that? Remember coded language, apocalyptic language? What is that? It's the word of God about the love of God and about how different God is and how his weakness defeats our strength and how his foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. It's the word of the message that he's given you and I to talk to, to our friends and people all over the world. That's what it is. So Jesus isn't Rambo. He's different than you. He's different than me, and he's calling us to be like him. 
Man, that's challenging. So what do we take away from the message of the Revelation? Uh, well, we learn to see things as they really are, even though they look awful on the surface and in your life maybe right now. Maybe you're having trouble in your life right now. God wants to pull back the veil and show you, no, the one who's at the center of history and the center of everything is good and loves you beyond your wildest dreams. Well, why am I suffering then? Huh? Well, you're following your master maybe. People do suffer. The Bible's never, never shy about saying it. Anybody tells you differently is not preaching the real gospel. That's the world we live in. And we have to experience it like everybody else. We don't get out of that. I know there's a lot of talk about a pre-tribulation rapture where we're going to get out of stuff. Boy, I don't know how these seven churches in Asia Minor would have seen that. How come you guys get out of that? I don't know how Rami would see that. We don't get out of it. It's going on right now. And we can expect more, but there's somebody that's with us the whole time, and he wins. Love does win. It really does. And so sometimes we follow our master in suffering, and the revelation shows us that there's a higher reality. Also, here's another thing we can take away from this message. There's probably ten things, but I just want to mention three. This is the second one, and that is that God is saying that he wants us to love difficult people. You know that Jesus that said, love your enemies in the gospel is the same Jesus that's revealed in the revelation. He hasn't changed. And so when somebody is mean to you, and it's not your fault, sometimes people are just mean because you're mean. Right? People are just mean because you're mean. Come on. Other times, real evil comes into your life. Somebody really does hurt you. Uh, what would happen if you loved that person? What would happen if you turned the tables and acted like Jesus? What would happen? I don't know. Let's try that. And here's the third thing. Serve. My friend Steve Shogren wrote a book called Servant Warfare. And I, I, it's a book about deeds of kindness, particularly simple and practical deeds of kindness, like this church does all over the community. He says, that's taking the sword and lopping off a demon's head. So God does want to put weapons in our hands. And the weapons are love and mercy and justice and compassion. Those are the things that will defeat evil. You defeat evil with good. You see, this is the Christian message. Don't accept a substitute. This is a hard message to walk out, isn't it? When it would feel so much better to take it out on that person you love to hate. I mean, who's going to take revenge if you don't? You almost feel obligated. They won't get by with it. When you break bad, there'll be consequences. So let God be the judge. It's above your pay grade. Let God do that. Go out and let God do that. You love the one who's coming against you and you pray for them and you pity them because really they're going to implode because evil always does. It always falls in on itself just like the plans of the enemy on the cross. He thought he had it made. And in his own anger, he destroyed himself. Jesus swallowed it all up. 
and then rose again. Let's stand up. I want everybody, please, um, to just close your eyes and bow in an attitude of prayer. If you're new to this sort of thing, just close your eyes and bow in an attitude of prayer. Um, pretty simple. And the reason I ask you to do that is because I don't want people to be distracted by you, like staring at them right now. So just bow your heads, close your eyes. There are some people in this room who haven't really dropped the quarter. You haven't really said, you know what? I agree with this. I'm going to follow this Lamb of God who gave his life for the world. And I'm, I'm going to embrace him by faith today. I'm going to walk with him the rest of my life. And I know that could mean suffering sometimes, but it also means that I enter into this love that's the center of the universe. I am forgiven for my sins, and I have started a new life today. That's what it means when you say yes to Jesus by faith. I trust you, your death, your resurrection for me personally. It's a commitment of everything that you are. And so I am going to pray a prayer of commitment out loud. You pray it under your breath after I pray it out loud if it's a step you want to take, okay? Oh, Father, I don't understand all the theology here, but I understand I need forgiveness. I understand I'm on the wrong road. Would you catch me up into your love? I trust you. Would you fill me with your life? Now, while your eyes are closed and stuff, would you guys who prayed that prayer with me just raise your hand real high in the air, right quick? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Others? Anybody else? Very cool. Okay. Uh, open your eyes. couple things going on here. We're going to pray for each other right now. Uh, one of them is a lady came to me in the lobby and, and she mentioned something that I had talked about in the seminar uh, and it was about that many people don't have an experience with God the Father that is good and the reason you don't is because you've never been fathered well. Maybe your own dad, your own authority figure in your life dropped the ball and what we do when we're little is that we transfer that to God and you just can't seem to get past it. There's a barrier between you and God. Um, and she also had a wonderful ministry idea. If, if uh, you're on the pastoral staff here, one of the fathers of this church, I want you to come up here right now. Uh, you know, because God wants those fathers to pray for people who feel fatherless. You know, you'll know immediately if that's you, okay? So I'm going to ask Danny and others, like... Yeah, JT's already up here uh, to come on up. If you are fathers that are in this church who've been following God for a long time and you've raised children, you come up here and pray because so far all we have is Danny. Small group leaders, ministry leaders, all you guys with gray hair, come on up. So what you guys are going to do is you're going to bless people who haven't had the privilege that you've had and your children had people in this church okay now I know it's going to take a little guts for people to respond to this but I'm going to ask you to do that right now just come up this way if we can pray for you about a father wound something that has happened in your life that has cut you off 
and you feel it, you know it. So you come up right now as well. While you're thinking about that and thinking, is that me? Should I do that? Um, There's some other things going on. If you said this, we'd love to pray for you and bless what God's already doing in in your life. We also want to pray for people with respect to healing. We want to, if, you, if you've got something going on in your body that's just not right, we'd love to pray for you. And I understand this whole church is a ministry team, so we're going to, we're going to get that done. So Penny, Danny, anything else going on? You know, it's just a wonderful thing to be in a room where everybody's been fathered perfectly. Folks, we're going to do one, one final song. So those of you who just, who, who just need that Father's blessing, who need that reframing of how you, how you view your Heavenly Father, perhaps, why don't you come on forward? If you have other needs today, come on forward. We're going to just, just pray for a little while as we do one, one last song. Why don't you come forward? No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. Here in your love, here in your love. No place I would rather be now. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. Here in your love, here in your love, here in your love, no place, there's no place I would rather be, no place I would rather be. No place I would rather be here in your love, here in your love. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be. No place I would rather be here in your love, here in your love. To set a fire down in my soul. That I can't contain, that I can't control. I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. I set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, I can't control. I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. more of you, God. There's no place I would rather be. There's no place I would rather be. There's no place I would rather be. Here in your love, here in your love, no place I would rather be. 
no place I would rather be, no place I would ever be, than here in your love, here in your love. Father, we just bless what you're doing right now. In Jesus' name, we just release the very presence of God. In Jesus' name, we release a Father's blessing. Come, Lord, just fill up those, those empty places. Come reframe how we can view the, the Heavenly Father, His heart, His attitude towards us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way in us as individuals, as a, as a church family. We just bless you right now. Release us to walk this week, not only in, in confidence of your love, of your affection, but as expressions of that love to others. We bless you now. You know, there's something um, else that I need to mention before everybody gets out of here. There are folk here that um, ha have been deeply hurt by others, and some deeply hurt by the church, and you've never really gotten over it. And God wants to end that today. He wants you to be able to love that person who hurt you, or at least start the process today. He wants to empower you to do it. And again, sometimes that's been a father, sometimes that's been a church, Sometimes that's been an authority figure. You know who you are. God's hitting you in the solar plexus right now. Don't leave this room. Come and, and let God start that process in you. Okay? I just wanted to say that before everybody got out. That's a good word, Mary. Why don't you, those of you who, who that spoke to, just come forward. And before you leave, just get some prayer. Otherwise, God bless you all. Don't forget, uh, leave a, a generous uh, offering for uh, for the missions offering in the boxes in the back. You could register for the women's uh, brunch as well as the the equip class. So we'll see you next week. God bless you guys.